Starting a new sermon series this uh, evening called Dear Church. And for the next couple of weeks, we're going to look at the book of Revelation, specifically chapter 2 and 3. We're going to look at the seven letters written to the churches in Asia Minor or the Roman Empire in that age. And we're going to specifically look at what does Jesus write to these churches. There's this prophetic action that takes place uh, where Paul, uh, not Paul, John has this vision of the glorified Christ. And in this vision, Jesus commands him to write to these seven churches. And then in each church, Jesus does something specific. He addresses them in a specific way, and he commends them, he prays them, and then he rebukes them, and then he tells them how they can correct it. And by looking at what Jesus said to these churches, we want to discover what is God saying to us as a church today. By studying these letters to churches, we want to ask, Jesus, what are you saying to us as a church? If Jesus wrote a, church, a, a letter to every nation, Twane Willows, what would he say in that letter? More importantly, what will that letter say to me and to you? In the next seven weeks, we want to discover God's heart for church and for us. And I want to encourage you as we start the series that you would use this next seven weeks to, to really delve into this. This is an incredibly interesting and fascinating part of the Bible. And do bring your Bibles with you to church. Uh, as I believe there's something powerful when you have the Word of God open in front of you, your own Word, and just studying that. So we're going to look at Dear Church. What is God saying to us? Now, I want to give us a little bit of background as to the book of Revelation, because I believe if we were to ask a couple of questions, what do you know about the book of Revelation? I think we'll have different opinions in this room. But the book of Revelation was written by the Apostle Paul. Why, ugh, Apostle Paul, come on, man. Now, if you're new to church, and I've made this mistake twice already, you're nervous about this sermon. This guy is supposed to be a theologian, and he can't get his teaches right. The Apostle John. Apostle John wrote the letter of Revelations while he was in exile on the island Patmos. And now for us, that would be off the coast of modern-day Turkey. So he was exiled, persecuted and exiled to this island. And here on this island, while praying, he had this revelation. That's why the letter is called Revelation. He had a vision not just of Jesus, the Jesus that we know about in the Gospels, but he had a revelation of the glorified Christ. The glorified Christ and his majesty in heaven. And Jesus spoke to John and he commanded John, write down everything that you see and you hear and write it to these seven churches. So this was the intended audience of the letter, was the seven churches in Asia Minor. And we're going to look at each one of these churches. They were not the only churches in that area. But there were seven most prominent churches, most influential churches, most significant churches. And they were on a very specific, specific route that people would travel. So if you were to travel this route, you would visit all seven of these cities, which had these churches. Now, that's a little bit of background of what this book is about. But the book of Revelations is often difficult to read and to study. Who of you have read through Revelations? Okay, just raise your hand nice and high. Okay. Who of you know what you read in Revelations? Okay. And that's fine. It's really fine because it's a difficult book. Um, Revelations is mainly a prophetic letter. And it's full of prophetic visions and symbols and letters and numbers. But it's a beautiful book. It's the only book in the Bible that says you will be blessed if you read and study this. Look in the first chapter of Revelations. Throughout the Word of God, we hear this. If we hear the Word and we apply it to our life, we will be blessed. But the book of Revelation is the only one that claims it for itself. 
There's something for us to discover in the book of Revelation. But I don't know about you, but 2020, 2021, when it was lockdown and it was just crazy season, I received a couple of messages from people about the end times. <laughs> when the end times. And all these signs. And then they would reference revelations. And part of it is true. Revelations does speak about end times. It does speak about a vision of eternity. It does speak about the glorified Christ and His throne and eternity. It is true. But the book of Revelation's main theme is not the end times. And if that is our main focus while studying this book, we will miss the glorious riches that is found in this book. There's a greater story in this book than just the end times. This book of Revelation starts off Revelations 1, verse 1, this is what the book is about. The revelation of Jesus Christ. Won't you read that with me? The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John. If you want to know what Revelation is about, that chapter tells us, that verse tells us. The main theme of the book of Revelation is the majesty and the glory of Jesus Christ. The revelation of the glorious Christ. That's the purpose of this book. And throughout this book, we will see the glorious Christ. And that's what our focus should be. With Jesus in this. Yes, it speaks about end times, but you know what? The purpose behind it is so that it encourages the church, so that we're strengthened, so that we have hope. I heard exams is a couple of weeks ago, to go, um, before it's exams. Imagine if you already knew what marks you're going to get. How would that change your current circumstances? If you were guaranteed, regardless of what happened in the next five weeks, you are guaranteed for a certain pass rate, let's say 75%. Yes. Jesus bless us with wisdom and knowledge. But if you were guaranteed, that's your mark. You know that's what you're going to get. How would it change your current circumstances? It would be different. You would be more relaxed. There would be a hope in your heart. And that's the purpose of Revelation. Because Revelation gives us a picture of in the end, Jesus wins. In the end, everything's going to be new. A new heaven, a new earth. And everything will be okay. And looking at the picture of end, we should be encouraged. And there should be a hope in our heart. Because of the glorious Christ. He's already won. That's the purpose of the book of Revelations. And tonight we're going to look at the very first church that Jesus writes his letter to, the church of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a really interesting city. It was a great city. It's one of the most wealthiest cities in those times. It was a city that was part of the Roman Empire but was self-governed. And if you have time, you're not going to study. You already know you're going to get 75. Use that time to study Ephesus, okay? It's just a great city. There were so many things happening. It was a wealthy city. It was a city where people flocked to that city. They wanted to be part of what's happening in that city. It had a natural port. It was part of a natural trade route. It was a city where you could make a name for yourself. It was a metropolitan. There were different things happening in the city that I don't want to elaborate too much on for the purpose of what we're going to speak about. But if you had to have an idea of, in my opinion, a similar city today to that of Ephesus, I would suggest Ephesus was something like living in Cape Town. Who would not want to live in Cape Town? Huh? It's, 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 life, life just looks easier in Cape Town. Wouldn't you agree? And the sunsets are nicer. There's more opportunities. Now, 
although Ephesus and Cape Town was not the exact same city, that's just to give us a picture to the church to which Paul, oh, John, is writing <laughs> his letter. What's really bad, I, I suppose to know this by now. I've studied it, I've prepared, I've already preached it. But that's the church to whom John is writing now. And we're going to read together in Revelations 2 verse 1. But before we do that, let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word is timeless and that it transcends all circumstances and that it has the ability to speak into our lives individually in this moment. And, and Lord, I pray tonight that as we look at your word and what you said to this church in Ephesus, I pray that by your spirit that you would make your word alive and active and that you would by your presence infiltrate our, our hearts and our minds tonight, Lord that you would bring truth to our circumstances by your word, Lord. But more importantly, Lord, that you would bring change to our hearts and our minds so that we'll be all able to live a life that glorifies you. And Lord, specifically, I want to pray for us as a church, Lord, that we as a church will listen to what you're saying to us, that we will not miss that what you've called us to, Lord, not just tonight, but even in the next couple of weeks. So, Lord, I just pray now for your presence. I pray for your protection of our time together, that nothing will come and steal the word that you want to sow into our hearts. And, Lord, ultimately, that you will be glorified through that what we do here. In your name, Lord Jesus, we pray this. Amen. So let's read together Revelation 2, verse 1. I've given you context as to what's happening here. The Apostle John writing, because Jesus had, he had this vision of the glorified Christ writing to the church in Ephesus. Okay. Read verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from this place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life which is the paradise of God. Now today's sermon is going to look a little bit different. From this letter, I'm going to make a couple of observations, speak into these observations. And after we've looked at these observations, I'm going to try and apply it to us as a church. I'm going to share with you what I believe God is saying to us as a church. So bear with me if it looks a little bit different. But there's a couple of observations. You will see there's a certain structure to these letters that we are going to see in all the letters to the churches. Okay. So the first observation, the characteristics of Jesus. It's interesting how Jesus describes himself to this church in Ephesus. Remember, Paul is just, oh, John is just writing down what he's seeing and what he's hearing. So he's writing down what he's seeing and hearing from Jesus. And this is how Jesus describes himself. Really interesting. He says, I hold the seven stars in my right hand. Now, if you look at Revelations 1, chapter 1, um, in, in chapter 1, we see that Jesus says that the stars represents an angel, messenger, or leader of the church. So what Jesus is saying I hold the leaders of the church in my, heart, in my hand, but more specifically in my right hand. The right hand was a reference to a position of power and authority. So Jesus is saying, with my power and my authority, I'm holding you as leaders. But then he goes on to say, I walk 
among you. I walk amongst the lampstands. Again, Revelations 1, chapter 1, we see that the lampstands is representatives of the churches. So Jesus says, I'm walking amongst you. And then Jesus said, I know you de- I know your deeds. This is beautiful. Jesus holds his church. He walks amongst his church and he knows his church. What a beautiful picture for us today. To know that the glorified Christ is intimately involved with his church. Jesus is intimately involved with his bride. He's not far off. He's not just um, distant. It's the glorified Christ. He says, I hold you with my authority and power. I walk amongst you, and I know you. What great comfort for us as the church to know that regardless of what we go through, regardless of what we might be facing, we have the authoritative power of Christ that holds us. We have the presence of God amongst us, and we have the comfort that God knows us. Jesus says, I know you, I know what you're going through, and I know what you're doing. God is intimately involved with His church. And I believe as we gather, every time that we gather, there's an opportunity for Jesus to do something in our lives. Because of His authority, because of His presence, and because of who He is. And He says, I know you. Regardless of what you're facing tonight, Jesus is saying, I know it. I know. The second thing that we see in this letter is Jesus praises this church. Jesus compliments this church, and there's three specific things that he compliments the church in Ephesus for, okay? Now, Jesus says, I know your good deeds. I I, want to praise you. I commend you for what you guys are doing. You're doing great as a church. You're working hard. You're showing yourself as being faithful. You're doing great stuff. You're doing the great and good things. Well done. First thing that he praises them for, the good deeds and their hard work. But then Jesus says, I praise you for your sound doctrine. This is a church that, that fought for the truth. We see that there were some false teachers and false apostles, and they fought for the truth. They fought for what is right and what is wrong. They stood on the truth, and they hold on to the truth. And Jesus says, well done. You've held on to sound doctrine. You've not allowed yourself to stray away and listen to different lies. You've kept the faith. You've stayed true to the truth. And then lastly, Jesus says, well done. You've stayed faithful. In the midst of persecution, you've endured and you've stayed faithful. That's great. I don't know about you, but imagine... We didn't know the rest of the letter. Imagine there was someone here tonight that says, I've got a specific word for every nation willows. And this person starts to share it. And you hear that Jesus is saying, I'm with you, I hold you, I know you. And well done for what you're doing. Well done for sticking it through and holding on to the truth. And well done for staying faithful in the midst of really difficult circumstances where you can so easily fall into sin and so easily do whatever you want to do. Thank you for staying faithful. Who would not go high five each other? We're doing great as a church. I imagine myself being a leader of that church. I would go, yeah, well done. Bonuses for everyone. Up until this point, this is a great report of this church. Well done. You're doing great. And let's be honest, they they did do great. They were doing great things in the kingdom of God. They were holding on to the truth in difficult circumstances, and they faced persecution, and they stayed faithful. But then there's a change. And then Jesus shares his concern third thing that we see in this letter, Jesus rebukes this church. Now when I say rebuke, it's out of love. And you'll see why I say this is out of love. But Jesus rebukes them. This one thing I have against you. 
you have forsaken the love you had at first. You've lost your first love. Now, they originally started out really passionately, were motivated for the kingdom of God. They did stuff out of motivation for the love of God. They were zealous for God. They were zealous for the love of God. They were zealous for what God wants to do amongst them. They were passionate, but somewhere something changed. See, something changed in their heart. And their deeds became a duty. Something that they must do, instead of the joy of something they wanted to do. Following Jesus, obeying Jesus, and doing the right things became something they must do, instead of something they wanted to do. Now, it's unclear from this letter whether this was a reference for their love of God, that they lost their love for God, that they lost, that they lose their love for each other, or that they lose their love for others that wasn't part of the church for the lost. It's unclear. But it's safe to conclude it might be all three. Because they're so interlinked. It's safe to say that this church might have lost their love for God, for each other, and for others. Their hearts grew cold. And their good actions, although it was good, was loveless. Now this was a serious accusation. To understand the severeness of this accusation, you have to use a, a relationship that we can relate to. Imagine in, in, in marriage or in a relationship of a parent and a child. So if you're married, you can imagine this. If not, imagine your parent comes to you, your father or your mother. Imagine your, your husband, your wife comes to you and they say, well, I, I'm, I'm committed to this relationship, okay? Uh, you're my child, I'm not going to leave you, I'm committed. I'm going to stay faithful and I'm going to provide and I'm going to take care of you and, and I'll be there when you need me. But the honest truth is I just don't love you. That's Jesus' accusation to this church. You're doing all the right things, but the honest truth is you just don't love me. You've drifted away from your first love. See, the church in Ephesus did everything but the main thing. The fourth thing that we see is then Jesus doesn't just leave them there. He gives them a command for restoration. This is what you need to do to be restored back into this love, to be restored into the original love that you had. And Jesus says three things that this church must do. Firstly, he says, remember, remember how far you have fallen. They must remind themselves of of who they were before they knew Jesus. They must remind themselves of how sin had a control over their life. They need to remind themselves of how sin affected their lives before Jesus. They, they need to remind themselves of how their lives changed when they encountered Jesus. They need to remind themselves of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. They need to remind themselves of the gospel. And then Jesus says, after you've reminded yourself, repent of your loveless deeds. Remind yourself, repent of those loveless deeds. And then he says, return to the things that you did in the beginning. Return to the way you loved me in the beginning. Return to the, the motive of your heart in the beginning. Do things motivated out of love for me and love for others. Remember, repent, and return. And if this wasn't enough, Jesus gives them a warning. And this is why I believe this was loving of Jesus to do this. Here's the warning that Jesus tells them. Guys, if you don't do this, I will return. And I will remove your lampstand from your place. That's what Jesus says. I will come to you and remove your lampstand. If you don't return to the way of love, you will remove 
I will remove your place. Meaning, they will lose their significance and purpose as a church. They will cease to exist with any purpose within the kingdom of God. See, if the church loses its love, it becomes irrelevant in this world. And Jesus warns them, if you don't move back to your original love, what you're doing is worthless. And it will have no effect in the kingdom. You will cease to exist. If a church moves away from the love of God, it loses all significance and purpose in this world. Then the sixth observation. Jesus calls them to a commitment. He says, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Meaning they shouldn't just listen to the Word of God, but they should apply the Word of God to their lives. Earlier in the Gospels, Jesus uses the same phrase. Do not just listen to my words, but apply to your life. Whoever has ears must listen. But what's really interesting, that this call to commitment wasn't just for the church in Ephesus, because this phrase says, if you can put that scripture on again, whoever has ears, and this was to all the churches. Not just this church. Jesus says, the churches. Meaning every church that hears this word must not just listen, but apply it to their lives. No, not just Ephesus, but from there, every church where this letter is going to be read. May they hear the words to Ephesus and not just listen it, but apply it to their lives as well. And here's the great news for us. It's the same for this church tonight. Because God said, wherever this letter is going to be read, may the church hear and not just listen, but apply. Here's even better news. Who of you have got an earlobe? Just quickly touch it, just make sure. I might lose you guys, I just want to make sure. If, if you don't have, this is the one occasion where you can be thankful for not having ears. But very practically, if you have ears, you need to listen. That's what the scripture says. Shouldn't overcomplicate it and over spiritualize it. If you hear the words of Jesus, it will serve you well to put it, put it into place, to apply it. And there's this, this appeal, this call to commitment. Don't just listen, but apply. Six observations from this letter to the church in Ephesus. But how does it apply to our lives? What's the meaning for us today? What does this letter say to us? Now for a moment, I just want to pause a little bit on the church of Ephesus. I want to make it really, really practical. Who of you sitting here tonight has ever started something with great motives but struggled to complete it? Fantastic. You're a lot more honest than the morning service. I'm going to give you that. Yeah, the morning service, I had to pull it out of them. Okay. It's just part of our human nature. If you think almost every New Year's resolution, that's the story. Huh? This year is going to be different. This year I'm going to do, mm. and then after two or three weeks, you're like, oh, it's not that important. People just uh, start on diets, okay? Now, I'm tired, but I'm looking, I'm tired, I'm feeling, now I've got, I've got this plan and this diet, and a couple of weeks later, back to junk food. Or exercise plans. Or you, you become part of the gym. And listen, when you commit to that gym membership, you go four times that first week, three times the next week, two times the weeks after that, and then once a month for the next three months. <laughs> or at least that was my experience. I don't know about you guys. I would hear people say, I'm going to read more books. What's your ratio between the books that you've started to read and the books you've actually completed? Just roughly, what's the ratio? I spoke with Dion before the service, and there's a joke in our house. Uh, there's one specific book. Uh, I've read it, and I've been trying to get my wife to read this book, and she's really committed to read it, but she started five times already. Every time we go away for a weekend or for holiday, that book just travels with us because this time she's going to read it. 
And it's a bit of a joke. <laughs> it's honestly, when we go away, I'm like, are you packing? I'm not going to tell the book, but she struggles to complete it. And there's books that I struggle to complete. There's a book on my, uh, my bedside table. I don't know how many times I've started that, reading that book, and every time I think, now, this time. Just halfway through, I'm, I'm, I'm done. I'm like, I can't do this. It's difficult. How many of you have something in your room or your house or your hostel where you're staying, a, a box that's not yet unpacked? Everything else is unpacked, but this is one item that you thought, ah, I'm tired. I'll unpack it sometime. Five months later, it's still there. In fact, you've added stuff to that box. <laughs> See, for whatever reason, most of us struggle to complete the things that we start off with. For whatever reason, it could be good reasons, it could be bad reasons, but most people do not complete everything that they start with, regardless of what the motivation is behind it. All of us can relate to something that we started with great passion and motivation and reasons for doing it, but struggled to complete it. See, we would be naive to think what happened to the Ephesus church would not happen to us. During this worship tonight, I, I was just praying and I was thinking, preaching to a, an older crowd and you guys, you've been through a couple of stuff, you've gone through certain life cycles and it's easier to relate to a church that's lost its love. Most of you are oh, still young. Most of you still has this zealous passion inside of you for Jesus. I look at the worship and it's, 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 it's amazing. Guys are lifting your arms. You're expressing your passion for Jesus. People are dancing in the front. People are getting baptized. It's beautiful. Don't lose it. Don't lose it. We would be naive to think what happened in Ephesus cannot happen here. And we need to guard against losing our love for Jesus. Because it can happen like this. And we can still continue to do great things and hold on to sound doctrine and persevere and stay faithful, but lose the love of God. Therefore, we need to be vigilant. We need to be careful. So I have to ask the question tonight, is your walk with God still motivated by love or has it become a duty? Your personal walk with Jesus, is it motivated by love or has it become a duty? Think about paying your tithe. And I know whenever we speak to a predominantly student congregation, you don't speak about money because you don't have money. And that's fair. But are you honoring God through your finances? Not because you must, not because there's this fear inside of you, don't do it, then Jesus is going to punish you, or God's not going to provide. It's not out of compulsion, it is out of an act of worship where you say, everything that I have belongs to you. Do you serve a church out of compulsion because somebody forced you? We had this I serve moment and it was awkward for you not to sign up and you were afraid somebody was going to ask you afterwards where you're going to sign up and therefore you just made a choice. But every Sunday we have to serve. You're like, oh, I have to serve again. I'm going to get out of this. I, don't know. I serve because I must. Or do we serve because we realize this is such a privilege to be able to serve within the spiritual family so that others may experience Jesus? And even though I've, I'm under pressure, even though I'm struggling to get to everything, I say, Jesus, would you help me to serve in such a way that other people may experience you? I greet people at church. I make coffee at church so that people can experience something of the love of the church for each other. I serve passionately for your namesake. 
Do you pitch up at a connect? Do you commit to become a follower of Jesus, a disciple of Jesus, not because, again, somebody is forcing you or this church tells you that you're not a disciple if you don't do a connect group or whatever that reason might be, whatever the fear might be driving you or compulsion might be driving you, but you pitch up for connect. You commit to being a disciple of Jesus because you know something inside of you needs to change and you want to honor God through the way that you live. Worship unto God. Because you love him and he deserves it. Do you reach out to family and friends? Not because somewhere, someone at church are going to ask you, so who are you praying for? But because when you encountered Jesus, your life radically changed. And it was so good. And out of love for others, you want them to experience it as well. To walk with God. Still motivated by love, or has it become a duty? I thought about what are some of the things that makes us lose this love, what makes our love grow cold towards Jesus. And there can be more than these five things, but this is the five things that I feel is most relevant to us. I'm going to share it with us as a church tonight. I believe one of the biggest reasons why our love grow cold is we forget. Like the church in Ephesus, we forget we grew up with church, we know about church, we know about the gospel, and we forget who we were before we knew Jesus. We forget our sin captivated our hearts, captivated our lives. We forget sometimes who Jesus is and what he has done. We just forget. Life gets busy, and we forget. The second thing that I feel makes us our love grow cold, and it's directly linked to forgetting is familiarity. We become familiar with God. We forget the privilege it is to be in relationship with an almighty creator. Do we realize what a privilege it is to be able to close our eyes and pray and know that he listens to us? The creator, the alpha and the omega, the almighty God listens to me and you, is involved in our lives? Do we still treasure that privilege? Or have, have we become familiar? Have we become familiar with the gospel, what it means to be saved? Because we've heard it so many times, the story of the gospel, that we've become familiar. Have we become familiar with church, the spiritual family, you know what we do here on a Sunday, what we do during the week in our connect groups? That's not normal. It goes against the patterns of this world. But we can easily become familiar. We can come, become familiar with forgiveness. God will forgive us. God will understand. We are forgiven. And we can become familiar with habitual sin. First, this thing bothers you. If you allow it long enough in your life, it just becomes part of your life. But slowly but surely, it will crowd out the love in your heart. We need to guard against familiarity. Disappointment. When life doesn't work out the way that we hoped or prayed for, it can drown out the love in our hearts. Maybe we're disappointed in God. Maybe we're disappointed or offended by people, the way people treated us or reacted or done certain things. Disappointment makes our hearts hard because if we don't take our disappointment to God, the only way that we can deal with our disappointment is making our hearts hard so that it stops hurting us. A hard heart struggles to love. Another thing that keeps us from living in love is unforgiveness. See, unforgiveness directly opposes love because God's love is demonstrated in how he forgave us. We cannot hold on to the forgiveness of God and at the same time in our hearts harbor unforgiveness towards others. It directly, directly opposes love of God. And the last reason 
And ultimately, I think all of these reasons boils down to this reason, is self-centeredness. Because love is seen in what we're willing to give and to do. For God so loved the world that He gave His Son. Love is sacrificial. It's not about you. It's about what you're willing to give and to do. God was willing to give His Son. He was willing to die on the cross for us. That's love. Love is selfless. But self-centeredness or selfishness is all about what do I get, what do I deserve, and what do I think I deserve. See, selfishness or self-centeredness smothers out love. And we need to guard against these things. It's one thing to say, hey, we shouldn't lose our love for Christ. This is the reason how you shouldn't do it. Guard against forgetting. Guard against familiarity. Guard against disappointment. God against unforgiveness and God against just self-centeredness. But in preparing for, for this sermon, there was this one thing that kept on nagging, uh, nagging me. I couldn't get around. Why was this such a significant concern for Jesus? Think about this. Think about this church. They are doing great things. They are doing good works. They are persevering. They're holding on to the truth. We would go. We would judge them as a church and say, well done. But for Jesus, they were missing something. This was a severe accusation. So why was losing their first love such a significant thing? It would be great if you can just share with someone next to you. Why do you think was this such a significant thing? Why is it dangerous if the church loses its love? So we don't know. All that we know is that Jesus said to the Ephesus church, if you lose your love, you lose your purpose. You lose the existence, your importance, your significance, your relevance in this world. You will cease to exist. Now as individuals, we have some comfort and a trust that in eternity, there's a secured hope for us that we will be in eternity. But there's not the same assurance for a church. We can leave this building tonight knowing that if you accepted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, in eternity, you will live with Him. But there's no assurance for a church. A church can cease to exist. If they lose the love of Christ, cease to have purpose in this world. Why is this so important? 1 John 4, I believe, gives us an answer to this question. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everything, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. The reason why this was such a significant accusation for the church of Ephesus is because God is love. If the church were to move away from the love of Christ, we move away from the very nature and character of who God is. We move away from God. And we need to realize everything outside of God is not part of God, not part of His plan, and not part of the kingdom of God. So if we don't move in the love of God, where are we moving? What kingdom are we participating in? Everything done outside the love of God is useless for the kingdom of God. 1 Corinthians 13, we know this so well. And Paul wrote this part. 
Peace. This is what Paul says. If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong and a changing cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship, that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Church moves away from the love of Christ. It means nothing. I thought about how, how can I describe this, and um, I was thinking about uh, malfa pudding. None of you enjoy malfa pudding. Um, I'll, I'll be honest. Partially, I would use this example to get my wife to make us malfa pudding. It didn't work, but yeah. But I don't know if you enjoy malfa pudding. Malfa pudding is just such a South African dessert. Okay? It's such a big part of our culture. Um, and it's, a, in my opinion, a great dessert. Fair, not everybody likes it, but, but malfa pudding. Hopefully I can really, really entice you to have some malfa pudding in this week. Uh, but I was looking at malfa pudding, and, and I got this recipe. Like I said, I was trying my wife to get this, to make it for us today. Uh, and I looked at this rep- recipe, and I thought, well, one cup of flour... Uh, one tablespoon of bicarbonate of soda, one cup of sugar, one egg, one, yeah, you can go through that. It's stuff we have in our home. And I thought, well, well, let's do this, okay? And imagine making malfa pudding, and you have the best of all of those ingredients, the best of the best of the best of the best, okay? Um, and you throw all of it together, and you follow all the instructions, and you do it exactly correct, apart from one little detail that you get wrong. Instead of a cup of sugar, you throw in a full cup of salt. Now remember, you, you, all, all the other ingredients is, is perfect. It's the best of the best of the best of the best. You followed the recipe to the T. You did it right. But you make one small mistake with the ingredients. Instead of a cup of sugar, you throw in a cup of salt. What will happen to that dessert? One small change in ingredients, and it will absolutely ruin that dessert. And here's the bad news about that. Nothing that you will do will rectify that mistake. That's what happens if the church loses its love. You can do everything to the T. You can have the best of the best of the best of the best. But without love, you ruin everything, and you cannot restore it. I believe we live in a time where people don't just need to hear about God. They need to experience God. When people walk away from our church, that they experience God. When they walk away from you, that they experience the love of God. Scripture in John 4 says, partially we can love others because we know God. See, if we lose our love for each other and for others, there's a fair case that we're not connecting with God. Because we live from the love of God towards the world. This accusation to the church of Ephesus was severe because they were wasting all their good deeds without love. And it could be that they were drifting away from God because they weren't showing love towards others. If God was writing a letter to us tonight, what would this letter tell us? Listening to the church of Ephesus What do you think God is saying to me and you? I believe for some of us, God is warning us, do not lose your love. Guard against it. Do not grow cold. Stay passionate. Do not lose that fire in your soul. 
I believe for some of us, God is calling you back into His love. He's inviting you, come back. And I believe for others, God is inviting you into His love for the first time. The question is, how would you respond? Church in Ephesus had to make a decision. And so we need to make a decision. Will I remind myself? Will I remember? Will I repent? And will I return? Tonight we're going to end by sharing in communion. Because when Jesus left this earth, he installed this sacrament with his disciples and he said, Whenever you use this, use this in remembrance of who I am and what I've done. And tonight in sharing in communion, we're going to use a moment in personal ministry to remind ourselves of who Jesus is and what he's done. And maybe if you know tonight God is warning you against certain things in your heart, God is calling you back into love, or God is calling you into his love for the first time, there's a moment of repentance where you're going to share in the communion, remind yourself of Jesus, but repent as well from those things. Say, God, would you forgive me? Would you forgive me? And then ask God, what are you calling me back into? Where are you calling me back into? What are you calling me to do? So I want to ask, let's stand as a church. And I want to pray for us. And when I'm done with the prayer, I want to encourage you to come and share in the communion. There's tables here in the front and there at the back. And get a space where you can be on your own or with friends and just honestly remind yourself of Jesus. And whatever God is revealing to you, to repent of that and to commit to return to your first love. Mm -hmm.